Well, this morning, if you have your copy of the Old Testament with you, I'll invite you to look with me at the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we will begin today. And <clears throat> that book can be a little hard to find sometimes in your Bibles. Oh, sorry. It's on page um, 807 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps you or not. <clears throat> um, you know that our theme for 2022 here at First Baptist is re dot dot dot. And we are exploring these various biblical words that begin with the prefix re. And we're also exploring our theological vocabulary that begins with that prefix re. And so our word for the summer is recreate. And we're going to engage in a study together of Ecclesiastes. And we want you to take advantage of the opportunities for you this summer. We want to live together in community. We want to have some fun together. And so if you would go to fbca.org slash recreation, you'll find an array of options for you to participate in this summer. So fbca.org slash recreation. All kinds of things for you to be a part of. We're going to have some competition uh, in tennis, in pickleball, dodgeball, and golf. There are some other things you can participate in. We have reading clubs and all kinds of fellowships. Barry wanted us to have an eating club We've chosen not to do that officially, but we'll leave that to you if that's something you'd like to participate in on your own. Um, but you can just find all kinds of things that are available for you. And what we would like for you to do actually this summer is to come together, play some of these things, have some fun. We have some family fellowships, game nights, a lot of stuff happening over the next two months. But we also want you to hang out with some lost people intentionally and just spend some time with people who are unchurched and give them an opportunity to learn a little bit more about who we are and what it means to follow Jesus. And actually, I think that you will be able to utilize remarkably the book of Ecclesiastes. You might not realize that just yet, but I hope to make that apparent to you based on our conversation today. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Instead of actually preaching a sermon this morning, what I want to do is just have a conversation with you and offer you an introduction to Ecclesiastes because we're going to study Ecclesiastes in June and July. So every Sunday morning, there will be a sermon proclaimed from Ecclesiastes. We're going to read through the book of Ecclesiastes as a church family this year or this summer as well as the book of Proverbs. And so what I want to do this morning is just introduce you to the conversation, okay? Kind of set the perspective to help us. Now, along the way this morning, a sermon might break out. And if so, I won't apologize for it. But I'm letting you know that my intent is really just to have a conversation with you to introduce this book to you, okay? Um, one of the, I've read, I've been studying Ecclesiastes now for several months, reading, 
praying through it. I've read numerous commentaries and books about Ecclesiastes. One of them that I've come across is written by Zach S. Wine. It's entitled Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. Let me share a quote with you from Zach as he introduces Ecclesiastes. He says, many want to reshape this book and our sermons from it to sound like Isaiah or Paul, to align with the language of systematic theology. And then I love this line, to comb the hair and remember our manners while in the presence of good company. But Ecclesiastes will not allow it. Bend it to your comfort zone and you will miss what this God-inspired text reveals about him. There is more to God than what Isaiah and Paul alone can show you. So with that said, I want to invite you into this conversation. And we'll look at the first page this morning, if you can look at that with you in your text. I've entitled the message, Real Life in a Broken World. And so let's just look at the opening page of Ecclesiastes. So verse one, page one. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea's never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear, ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. I just wanted to begin our summer on an optimistic, positive <laughs> note. So how have we done? Um, well, here's what I would begin with as we think together about Ecclesiastes. If, if you ask me, what, what's it really about? Here's how I would put it. Paradise lost. The Edenic echoes abound in creation. In other words, there's evidence of Eden in creation. However, the fallen nature of it all drowns them out with discordant tones of brokenness. In other words, you, you, you can see a glimpse maybe of the Garden of Eden occasionally, but it's so broken that the noise of brokenness in its discordant measures seems to just drown out anything that reminds us of Eden. So here's what I would say as we work together this summer. I'm going to ask you just to get ready 
buckle up, and let's just see what happens as we make our way through this book, okay? So it's challenging. It's challenging in its opening. Look, look at what it says, the very first sentence, the words of the teacher. The Hebrew word there, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word is koholeth. We're not really even sure how to translate koholeth into English. Some translations say preacher. Now that'd be my favorite translation. Some say teacher. You know, teachers pour it on, but preachers rub it in. It's two completely different gifts. And you can use either one. It actually, the word kind of means someone who's gathered in assembly. It, it has that connotation. But uh, there are a number of Hebrew scholars who say, just don't translate it into English because there's not really a good word for it. Just call it the koholeth. Well, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And Ecclesiasticus is the Greek word for koholeth. So that's where we get our title from, Ecclesiastes, from the Greek Septuagint. And so, and then he says, he's the son of David. Now, many people called themselves son of David. That was a common title. And then he says, king in Jerusalem. So, is this Solomon? Is that who this is? Some scholars say that's kind of the traditional historic view. This is Solomon. However, as you read through this, y'all, it, it, it causes us some question. For example, if you look at verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. What does that mean? Was there a time when Solomon retired? Well, no, not that we know of. And then sometimes the, the teacher is quoted in the third person. So I guess the safest way to put it is we don't really know who this person is. If you want to say it's Solomon, I'm fine with that, but we don't know for sure that it's Solomon. But it's someone in that tradition, someone from the wisdom world. It's, it's in the wisdom section of literature in the Old Testament. And as someone who's speaking kind of in the, from the perspective of a Solomon. And basically, here's what's about to happen. This writer is inviting you to a tour, and he's the tour guide. So here's what we're going to do this summer. We're all going to get on the tour bus. Okay, so let's all get on. We all get on. Here's our guide, Koholeth. Now, tour guides make a big difference. Would you not agree? This is a tour guide who is filled with both facts and feelings. He sees things, and what we're about to experience as we study Ecclesiastes is what he observes and what he feels. And he's deeply honest, and he will make many of us feel uncomfortable because he is prone to push boundaries, and his observations can be quite unnerving, I would say. Um, as I was studying Ecclesiastes, as I said, I've read through numerous commentaries. One commentator, I don't remember which one it was, tells about a friend of his who went, a tour, went on a tour of Auschwitz. And he said the tour guide did a wonderful job. And he set the historical context of Auschwitz, explained what happened, and it was a very meaningful, memorable experience. Said this guy went back, took another tour of Auschwitz, and this time the tour guide was a survivor from Auschwitz. And it was very different. 
In other words, this second tour guide didn't just know the facts, the historical context. He had experienced the reality of it, and the person said it was a very different kind of tour. This tour guide is someone who has experienced something, and he is going to share his observations and how he feels about them. And what I'm going to say to you is, those of us on the tour bus, it's going to make some of us really uncomfortable as he points out what he observes and how he feels about it. Um, C.S. Lewis, brilliant philosopher, we would say theologian. He would not have referred to himself that way, but we cast him in that light. In 1960, his wife died. Uh, Her name was Joy. And uh, he married her later in life. They didn't have children together. She had children. She died with cancer. It was a very painful time. He wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It's kind of a play on words. It was about how he found love later in life, but he also experienced joy. She died in 1960. 1961, he published a very famous book. The title of the book is A Grief Observed. But if you have an original copy of A Grief Observed, the author is N.W. Clerk, not C.S. Lewis. He published it anonymously. And the reason he published A Grief Observed anonymously is because he knew that when people read it, they would be shocked that C.S. Lewis had any of these thoughts or feelings. It's such a raw take on grief. He knew that some people would read it and it would really cause them to wonder how can a person of C.S. Lewis's stature and caliber express such despair and hopelessness. It was after he died, later, the family decided it was okay to republish the book under his real name. And so eventually the book was republished and the real author was listed as C.S. Lewis. And it was shocking to some people. Maybe some of you have read that book. It's, he talks about his wife. He never calls her Joy. He only refers to her as H. Her first name was Helen. And so he's talking about Joy, but he was writing it anonymously so he didn't want people to know who he really was. It's not a scholarly treatise on grief. It's not a philosophical presentation of theodicy. It's not, a, it's not theologically articulate. It's four sections of a husband's grief. And so he gives it a very specific title, A Grief Observed. He says, this is just what I've observed myself. Here's what I have felt. That's all it is. It's raw, it's hard to read, and it can be very challenging. Ecclesiastes is that way. This this author is inviting us on a tour, and it's going to be raw and emotional because he feels so deeply. And basically, here's what he says. It all started with such great promise, the Garden of Eden. God created everything, and man, it was awesome. And now, all we hear are echoes from the Garden of Eden. You know, when I lived in Alabama, in Alabama, we have a a part of Alabama that's called Tornado Alley. And it's because of the geological formulation of our state There's just a swath where tornadoes just kind of go through the same area year after year after year. I lived in Huntsville, Alabama before I moved here. Huntsville's a part of the 
Tornado Alley. Have y'all ever been to tour a place after a tornado has hit it? Do do y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like if you were with a tour guide and the guide said, you know, used to, there were more houses here in this neighborhood, but after the tornado, you, you, you can see, well, you can see some of the foundations where they were. Used to, there, there was a grocery store right here on the corner, but, you know, the tornado took it out. And, you know, used to, there was a bookstore over here where we used to go and we used to take our children there. There's, there the Saravalos had a, had a laundry mat right here on the other side of that grocery store, but, you know, it, it's gone. I don't know what happened to the Saravalos. Um, there was a bowling alley right here on the other side of the street. We used to take our family there bowling, but it's, it's gone. Used to. That's how this is going to feel. And we can identify with it in America today. In fact, I think this is a great book for contemporary Americans. Because right now, my nation is gripped by deep and hollow skepticism. Because people in my nation are saying things like this. You know, used to, we could drop our kids off at school and not worry about them. Used to. You know, used to, we could go to the neighborhood grocery store And we didn't have to worry about a racially charged terrorist taking people's lives in line at the grocery store. You know, used to, we could trust the church. When when the church was confronted with some serious, egregious sin, and used to, the church would address it, but we've all read the news, we, we've seen how the Roman Catholic Church handled sexual abuse and predatory behavior. And now you can add Southern Baptists to the list. You know, used to, we could trust the government to, to make good, responsible decisions. Now I'm not so sure anymore. In other words, I feel like today Americans are on this tour and it's, it's filled with this listful memory of how it used to be, and now it's really different. Times have changed. You, you hear that listful longing. Well, welcome to Ecclesiastes. Welcome to the bus. Because on this bus, the human perspective will be our habitat. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, here's what's interesting about it. It's in the Old Testament. It's part of the wisdom literature. But you don't have to have any biblical knowledge to read Ecclesiastes, and it will make sense to you. There's no mentioning in Ecclesiastes of Abraham. There's no story of the Exodus. The writer doesn't talk about the covenant, the promised land the redemptive activity of God in the life of Israel. None of that's there. You can be biblically illiterate and sit down and read Ecclesiastes and just as a human being, you'll find yourself going, yeah, I see that. So what I would say to y'all is, and to myself, 
if we hang out with some lost people this summer, this would be a great book to ask them to read. You ever read Ecclesiastes? This is a fascinating book. Maybe you ought to read it sometime. Well, I don't really know anything about the Bible. That's great. You don't have to know anything about the Bible to read Ecclesiastes. And it's actually in the Bible. It's an interesting book. It's almost a pre-sermon where the, this, this particular writer is infatuated with the human dilemma. And he's going to invite me and you to think. And he's going to challenge us, y'all. So I just want you to get ready. He's going to challenge you. Matter of fact, I've been reading through Ecclesiastes every morning now for a good while. Praying, studying. And I can't help myself. You, as a good, mature Christian, those of you that are, you're going to feel led to respond when you read it. I have. I've been reading it sometimes. I wait a minute, dude. Hold on. Hold, hold, hold on, man. I get, no, no. See, see, you don't know the rules. Here's the deal. Let me just tell you this right now. This right here, this is supposed to work, okay? And I know it's supposed to work. So don't, don't even be telling me about all this kind of stuff. So, hey, I, I before E, Okay, Coleth says, hey, what about after C? Yeah, but see, I before E, man. Well, how about neighbor and wait? That's Ecclesiastes. He's a little bit of a smart aleck, actually. Because you keep responding. Well, what about this? He'll say, yeah, what about, what about that? Huh. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I see God doing this. Hmm, interesting. What about this right here? And so, Here's what's going to happen to me and you on this bus. We're going to say to the driver, okay, I've seen enough. I want to go back to my neighborhood. And he's going to say, uh, no, see, no, we're not done yet. We're going to turn down this alley. I don't want to go down that alley. Yeah, yeah, you need to. I want to show you something. So we're going to wind our way through all of this, y'all. And, um, and it's, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. And I just want to invite you to it. Um, it's going to be a, a little stark it's an edgy book. And this writer is at home with these conflicting, discordant chords of a broken world. Let, let, let me read you another quote from Zach S. Wine. Um, he says this about Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. He says, if Proverbs is like math, mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology, giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable in its ability to ramp with storms or breathe easy with a mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God love, God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of a tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. In other words, Ecclesiastes is about the real, raw part of life. And it can be challenging. And it challenges me and you in a lot of ways. It, it, it challenges... Um, some of the things that we're prone to say. Hey, it's gonna be all right. It's gonna all work out. God has a, he has a better plan. You know, everything happens for a reason. You know, all those are true. But sometimes they're just inadequate in the moment. Ecclesiastes is okay with those inadequate moments. 
Ecclesiastes is okay with a little ambiguity. You see, there's nothing wrong with lingering a little while in those moments of ambiguity. We want to rush to the goody. Well, this tour guy's not going to let us do that. He's going to keep us on a path. He's going to keep driving through neighborhoods that make us uncomfortable. In fact, I would say secular Americans will feel very much at home in Ecclesiastes. It's just a, it's like a pre-sermon. You know, Koholet's not the only one that does that kind of thing. Though, You know, Paul even does it sometimes. You know, whenever Paul would go to a, a town, he'd go visit a synagogue. He'd go in the synagogue, you know what he'd do? He'd read the Old Testament to the Jews there. He said, let, let me read this to you from Isaiah. Now, let me show you why the Messiah has already come. Let, let, let me show this to you about the Old Covenant. Let me explain the New Covenant to you. But what about when Paul was with people who didn't have the Old Testament, who didn't believe in the Old Testament, who didn't even know what the Old Testament was? What did Paul do when he was with secular Gentiles? Well, he did something really different. For example, in Acts 17, he's in Athens with, with Greek philosophers, Gentiles. And here's what the Bible says. Paul stood up at the meeting in the Areopagus right outside of Athens. He said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. I walked around, I looked carefully at your object of worship. I even found an altar that said to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And yet, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in all these temples you have here built by human hands. He's not even served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And he, he just tells the story of creation. In other words, he doesn't start with Jesus. He talks about creation. Something that all human beings reflect on. So, we can be at home in this book. Now, let me say one other thing real quick, and I just want to point you to a couple of things in this text. Let me give you the spoiler alert, okay? So, if you don't want to know, don't listen, okay? We're going to start on page one, and we're going to wind through 11 and a half really challenging pages, okay? But here's the spoiler alert, because we're going to spend this summer reading Look at page 12, very last page, Ecclesiastes. Get all the way to the end, okay? Verse 13, he says, now, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. You see, the book starts out acting like nothing matters, and you come to the last page and you find out, lo and behold, everything matters. And fearing God is truly the beginning of wisdom. So we're going to get there, but let's don't shortchange the visit and the tour because the journey is important. So let's look back at chapter one. Here's what the bus driver tour guide says. Hey, y'all, hey, Eden has been lost. Have you noticed? Have you seen what's going on? He says, let me just give you a clue. Very first thing, here's what I'm gonna tell you. The trip is getting started. Look at verse two. I'm your tour guide. Nothing matters. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. The Hebrew word is Habel. Habel. 
That word is found 86 times in the Old Testament, 38 times in Ecclesiastes, eight times in Genesis. Sometimes it's a descriptive word. Sometimes it's a person's name, Abel. Does that ring a bell? Adam and Eve had a son. They named him Cain. They had another son. They named him Abel. Same word that's found here. What does it mean? It means, um, it means mist. Um, it means um, futile. It means empty. It means vain. It means no meaning. Isn't that interesting? There are some theologians who say this is actually a book about Abel. And we've missed it all along. Because there's that idea of retributive theology that if you do good, good will come in return, unless your name's Abel. Turns out if you do good, your brother murders you. That's Abel's story. Now, I don't know that I would take it that far, but I do know the person that wrote this book knew the story of Abel. It's the very same word, 36 times, 38 times rather, just in this text. So welcome to my tour. Here's how we're going to start. None of this really matters. It's just not meaningful. Isn't that funny how people can make those kind of statements? You ever heard anybody say, there's no absolute truth? And that's an absolute statement. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Um, Nothing matters. There is no meaning. Well, actually, there is meaning because I understand what you're saying. Well, but what I mean is everything is meaningless. Well, I get it, but I mean, I'm still understanding what you're saying. So there must be some meaning or we couldn't have this conversation. Well, here's what I'm telling you. Everything is meaningless. And then he says this, I can tell by looking at y'all that you don't believe me. I see you kind of poking your neighbor. I'm going to prove it to you. So here's what he says. The cyclical nature of creation, it just points to a deeper meaninglessness. Okay? So look at verse 5. He says, some of y'all got up this morning and saw the sunrise. Guess what it's going to do tonight? Sit. And then guess what it's going to do tomorrow? Rise again. And then what it's going to do tomorrow night? It's going to set again. You're going to get up the next day and guess what? It's going to rise again. It's going to set again the next day. That's just what it does. It just drones on and on. la da It doesn't mean anything. Some of y'all like to go down and stand at the river and say, man, isn't it beautiful? Guess what? That river and that stream's just going to flow down to the sea. Sea never gets full. Have you ever noticed? It never gets full. It just keeps receiving all that water. And next thing you know, a cloud comes along, soaks all the water back up into the sky, and then drops it all back down. That stream just runs back down in the sea again. never gets full. It just goes on and on. And the wind blows, goes wherever it wants to do, blows all the way around the world, starts all over again, just keeps blowing. Once again, la ti It just means nothing. So there you are looking at Something that God, you and I would say, well, that's a, that's a sign of God's design. But if you're looking to it for hope, it's just meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. So we don't necessarily have to be all that infatuated with it. And you say, he says, oh, I, I can tell by looking at you that you're going, yeah, I get that, but I'm going to tell you something. What we do matters. He says, yeah, seriously? <laughs> You actually think that your life matters? I mean, is that what you think? Here's what he says. Human accomplishments seem so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Look at verse three. What do you actually gain from your labor? What what difference do you possibly think you're making? Look at verse eight. Everything's just wearisome. Your eye, you, you never get enough of seeing. You never get enough of hearing. And you've never done anything original because somebody else has done it before you and probably done it better. As a matter of fact, 
nobody is going to remember you. I can see right now, you're looking at me thinking, man, he didn't know what he's talking about. What I'm telling you is nobody is going to remember you. That's what's going to happen. Generations will come, generations will go, and the people who come along after you will forget you. Trust me. Who won the World Series last year? Who won it five years ago? Who won the Super Bowl last year? Who won it 28 years ago? I don't know. How far back do you have to go to the Cowboys? What is it? Let's see. Who won the Oscar last year? Who won the best picture last year? Who won it 10 years ago? Who, who won it 20 years ago? The deal is, you know what happens? People just forget. How many people do you know? How many people do you know? Well, how many people have lived? Think about how few people you know compared to all the people that all live in the whole history of the world. The bottom line is, the writer says, y'all, your life, you think somebody is going to come along and go, man, this person was influential. No, they're not going to remember you. And if they do, they won't care. Generations come, generations go. Some of y'all are saying, I want to get off this bus. You can't get off the bus. We're forcing you to stay on this bus. Now, one other thing. There is nothing new under the sun. Look at verse three. Do you see that phrase? Under the sun. Verse nine, under the sun. Now, now we get it. 30 times in Ecclesiastes you'll find that phrase. Now I'm starting to understand. You see, this writer is only viewing the world under the sun. Uh, and this person's looking for ultimate meaning under the sun. Guess what? Your neighborhood is filled with those kind of people. Your office is full of them. They just live under the sun. And if you live under the sun, and that's all you do, you can do whatever you want to do. You can just make it up as you go. You can change whatever rules you want to change. Words have no meaning. Institutions aren't valued. You're just under the sun. I, I was reading an article this week. There's a lady in India this month that's marrying herself. Marrying herself. You know what it's called? Sologamy. I've got a name for it. You're going to have to go look up sologamy because you don't know what it means. I got a word for it. You know exactly what it means, but I'm not going to use it this morning. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How can you marry yourself? Well, if your whole life is under the sun, you can do what you want to do. You can change whatever you want to change. You can act like things don't matter. You can decide for yourself what matters. This writer is giving us a tour of life under the sun, and it turns out it's really broken. One other quick word, and here's kind of the sermon. Can I do that? It just may break out. Let me offer you this word as we get ready to start our journey for the next two months. There is someone wiser than Solomon. Jesus, Matthew 12, the Pharisees said, show us a sign. Jesus said, you know, you guys, y'all are always wanting some kind of sign. I mean, seriously, y'all, y'all don't know. This is the Dennis Wiles Living Bible paraphrase. 
Jesus said, you guys don't know. I mean, seriously, you want a sign? How many signs do you need? I mean, God sent you Jonah. You know, I mean, you, 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 don't, you, you don't even know what time it is. You're right here. You, you, you have no idea the moment you're living in. You're asking for a sign. You know, the queen of Sheba, did you know that the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon? I mean, the queen of Sheba, the richest woman in the world, came to see Solomon. And Jesus says, there's somebody greater than Solomon right here. Praise God. Jesus. So as we're reading this, we're also listening for the voice of Jesus. And you'll hear it along the way. This writer says, what will it gain a man when he experiences this toil and labor? It sounds familiar to me. Jesus one time said, what, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What does that profit you? What if you spend your whole life under the sun, Jesus said, and you lose what you're really created for? Mm, you'll miss out on so much. So what I want to do today, y'all, is I want to invite you to this tour. And I want us to resist the temptation to get off, to get mad, to demand that we go to another neighborhood. I'm going to ask you just to stay in your seat. And let's just listen to this tour guide, see what he has to offer us. And let's see if along the way we can't hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us as well. And let's just see where it leads us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we, we thank you today, Lord, for how you are at work in our world. And we acknowledge that we do live in a broken world. And we see the evidence of brokenness all around us and the fallen nature of humanity and sinfulness. And we experience it in our own lives, obviously, but we see it all around us. And, and God, sometimes we're overwhelmed by it. But I want to thank you today for the fact that uh, we still see your hand at work. And we still acknowledge your presence in our lives. And that in spite of the overwhelming discordant tones of brokenness, we also find the hope of redemption. But Lord, help us not to run too quickly in this journey. Give us the patience to linger and to listen and to learn about just how deep the brokenness is and how much work is required for redemption to take effect. And I pray that it will help us identify with our neighbors and people who are living their whole lives simply under the sun. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.